Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you all open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter. We'll begin with verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. Let's stand as we read God's word. This is the word of the Lord, which is true forever. Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And skipping down to verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is another parable. We're in a series on the parables. And this is the parable that is variously known as the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. Um... And we are, as we said, as you'll see on the sign out in the front hallway, we are going through the parables. And just to comment about parables so that we don't pass over verse 24 too easily, Jesus presented another parable to them. And I want you to notice that word another because what it shows us is it was Jesus' habit to speak to them in parables. This last week I was listening over and over to a book that's a little short book written by a guy who at the time was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and it's an an astounding book. It's a wonderful book. It has not lost anything in the hundred years since it was first published. All of you should read it. So what's its name? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Because I'm going to be critical of the book for a second, and then you can ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you the name of the book. But one thing that's very difficult about the book is that the book is constantly signaling to the reader how sophisticated the author is, and how he's well aware of other intellectuals watching what he's doing, and that he wants them to know that he's not stupid. And so, for instance, at one point, he he talks about two men, Plato and Goethe, or however you're supposed to say it, you know, G-O-E-T-H-E. And 
he talks about how these guys are princes among men, and then he laments the fact that public education today in America has devolved to such a point that people aren't even recognizing that Goitin and Plato are princes among men. But this is a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you're always having to like step out of the gospel of Jesus Christ and realize that many important people are reading this book and that he's trying to keep many important people along on the ride as he defends the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? And so many of the books today, that's what we do. So many of the sermons today, that's what we do. So many of our talks with other believers on campus, that's what we do. We're, we're so busy reassuring people that we're reasonable, that we're not stupid, that we're educated, that we read, you know, that we know what the hip music is, you know, that Jesus can't come through. Because when Jesus comes through, what does he do? He teaches in parables. And what are parables? Parables are simple stories that pack a wallop. That's what a parable is. Now, normally, that's all I'd say about it, but I'm going to make the point even, even stronger today by saying, and this particular parable is really pretty, pretty simple among parables. Because what's going on here? Well, it's, it's like the most basic aspect of man's existence. A guy plants some seed and weeds grow up with the seed. You know, you don't have to be complicated. You don't have to, you, you know, you could probably be a, a kindergarten dropout. And you'd get that one. And this is what carries the truth that Jesus comforts us with today. Parable about seeds and weeds. And that's it. And so this is the need of the day, that we will be as simple as Jesus is, that we'll be as direct as he is, and that we will see in every part of God's creation testimony to God's truth. That this summer, and when we start weeding, every time we weed, we'll be thinking about the wheat and the tares. That we'll begin to think theologically about life instead of scientifically. Science is such a stingy discipline. It's so unwilling to see the glory of God. And so it starts, Jesus presented what? Another parable to them. Saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, it's going to be hard to keep track of what I'm doing because I'm going to skip from the explanation beginning in 36 to the actual parable, but just bear with me if you would, please. And so the kingdom of heaven, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of God, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-G-N, the reign. The kingdom of heaven is the authority of God. The kingdom of heaven is where God rules. Now, we have a word for that in Reformed churches, and we refer to it as God's sovereignty. But the word sovereignty is used by us mostly to comfort a mother who lost her child. Well, you know, we trust in God's sovereignty, don't we? And it's a comforting thought that nothing escapes his authority. Nothing comes to his children that doesn't pass through his hand. God is sovereign over our lives. And so when we face difficulties, we look at those difficulties and we say, this is not a disappointment, but this is a his appointment, right? That's what Enoch, the gardener, in seminary that I worked with, would all, I'd come in and I'd say, I'm disappointed. You know, I'm a, I, if you don't know this, I'm a disappointed kind of man. <laughs> you know, I always have disappointments all the time. <laughs> you know, I'd come in and I'd say, Enoch, I'm disappointed. And Enoch was this godly, 
And it might have something to do with Baptist Gardner. And he would look at me and say, boy, how are you spelling that? And I'd look at him and I'd go, what? And he'd say, how are you spelling that, boy? And i how am I spelling what? Is it D-I-S or H-I-S? Very helpful. And so we comfort ourselves when we suffer, when we have sickness, when we have the day-by-day disappointments by remembering God's sovereignty and remembering that everything that comes to his children is, is a his appointment. But you know something? The authority of God is not given to you to be a lollipop. It's not cotton candy. And you can't pick it up at one place and set it down at another. If God is the king of the universe, then that king rules over wickedness as well as the righteous. He rules over the sons of Satan just as much as he rules over the sons of God. There is no place on this earth where you can escape God's authority. You can't do it. And so I always get a kick out of people who are very, very zealous to talk about how God blessed them by allowing them to to, to not miss the bus at the bus stop, you know? And yet, when the World Trade Center comes down, well, that was just terrorism. And when there are floods, and when there are earthquakes, and when little children die, then all of a sudden we start thinking that, well, this isn't God's sovereignty, this is just you know, fate, or this is, this is just sort of uh, the principle of yin and yang, you know? No, 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 no. God rules over the world. You remember what Jesus said at the end of his life, before he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of his Father, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a subject. A disciple is a slave. Go therefore and make disciples of all men, baptizing the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Now does that sound like somebody who's made his peace with separation of church and state? No, no, no. All authority has been given to me in heaven. Is that what Jesus said? All authority has been given to me on heaven and inside the sanctuary of Clearnote Church, Bloomington, when the people of God are assembled for corporate worship Lord's Day morning. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in Clearnote Church and in the homes where one of the mothers or father, either the father or the mother or both of them are Christians. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in Clearnote Church and in Lighthouse and Bloomington Schoolhouse, but not Bachelor, and not South, and not, not a you. And so here's what we do, people. We personalize the authority of God where it's a comfort to us, and then we relativize it where It's a shocker. And where it would cause us to insert ourselves into conversations in a way that might be very hurtful to our career, to our degree, to our grade, to our pension, to our marriage, to our family relationships with our extended family. It's like all of a sudden then it's like, well, I believe. And man, that's such a horrible thing to say. You realize every time you talk about your values and what you believe, you're giving up the authority of God. Nobody wants to know what you believe. (laughs) What they want to know is, does God exist? And will he judge us? That's what they want to know. They want to know, is God over heaven and earth and will he judge me? 
And so now you come back to the text and it says the kingdom of heaven. And you think, oh yeah, yeah, that's up there. And Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The kingdom of heaven is a placeholder for the kingdom of God. Where is it that God isn't in authority? In the Supreme Court? Those guys don't even make logical sense. I mean, in basic, basic reason and logic, they have no authority. They don't even submit to the Constitution. Now, I'm not making a political statement for heaven's sakes. Anybody that's read Roe versus Wade has to hold their nose as they read it. Even pagans, it's such bad law. It's horrible. Everybody knows this. This is not a political statement. I'm just saying that we cannot, uh, what would I say? We cannot go through life deciding where we're going to live out the authority of the kingdom of God and where we're going to cave. We can't do that. You can't be a disciple in your bathroom with the door shut. Come on. In the privacy of your own brain in the bathroom with the door shut. Now, I'm mocking you, but it's, it's, it's a Bailey kind of love. Okay? And, and I'm mocking myself first because that's what I want to do. I want to be a pastor with nobody around. I want to be the guy that gets paid if there's nobody comes, you know. I don't want to have to confess Christ publicly. That's me. And so if I mock you, I'm mocking myself. And here's the thing. We cannot allow the Supreme Court to tell us where the authority of God is. It's just absolutely bogus. Jesus will not subordinate himself to the Supreme Court of the United States. He will not subordinate himself to the principle of democracy. There is no democracy in the universe. The universe is under the authority of God. And so where is the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Okay, you ready? In my heart. (laughs) Well, of course that's true. There is no person who's under... The authority of God who has not been born again by the Spirit of God and he owns your heart. But if he owns your heart, what's going to happen? Everywhere you go, you're going to proclaim the authority of Jesus Christ. You can't help it. You're going to proclaim it by not looking down your nose at the people walking into Walmart as you walk out. Okay? And you're not going to cave when they arrest you for calling out to those going in the abortuary that they shouldn't kill their children. You'll go to jail. And both not condemning the weirdos at Walmart and not shutting up outside of the abortuary are simply the function of a heart that's under the authority of God and that proclaims it wherever it goes. And so don't get all U.S.E. You know, United Statesy, don't get all like d- democracy on us about the authority of God. The authority of God is from age to age, from top to bottom, there's no place that we can flee from his presence. He will judge every act. He will judge every idle word. Everything will be brought into the light. And there will be no Supreme Court justice. President Obama, President Bush, none of their wives, none of them are going to be saying anything when they stand before the judgment seat of God. They won't say, well, you must understand, your majesty, that in the Oval Office, I was serving the people. I was under the constraints of the Constitution. I had to abide by separation of church and state. No, 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 no. Every single man and woman on the Supreme Court, every decision they make, every word they write, 
is either them proclaiming the authority of God or them attacking the authority of God. There's no middle place. There's no middle place. Every single time you open your mouth, every paper you write, every time you talk to your neighbor, you either proclaim Jesus Christ, his universal authority, or you are ashamed of him and his words. There's no middle place to live. God is desirous of making distinctions between those who are sons of God and those who are sons of Belial, which is Satan. God is interested in making that distinction as completely clear as possible. This is God's commitment, and all of history is leading to the day when there will be no more confusion when everything will be evident. This is not a road God is walking down with a gun sticking at his back. You know, he's not being forced into this by some duelist power. God has ordered the universe and it is leading to the harvest. Okay? The harvest. And you know, one of the most precious texts in all of Scripture is this one in in Genesis 8, verse 22, where it says this. I'll bet you've never seen this as precious. And I never had either, until Doris Allen taught me to love it. This is God speaking, Genesis 8, 22. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Isn't that beautiful? To think that God has promised that he won't take the seasons from us. And sure as day follows night, every year leads what? Every year leads To harvest. It leads to harvest. And God's God's not unaware of this. He doesn't need the scientists, the climatologists to tell him this. He's ordered his universe to testify to you that the harvest is coming. And that at the harvest, every single judgment will be right. There will be no error in judgment. There won't be money under the table corrupting justice. There won't be the influence of the teachers' union. The AFL-CIO. The AARP. The Hispanic vote. No, 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 no. None, 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 none. God does not have a blindfold on. He doesn't need to wear a blindfold when he holds the scales of justice. God judges perfectly, perfectly. In Revelation 14, beginning with verse 14, we read this. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. book of Revelation tells us about what is to come. It gives us all the details of what is to come. And in Revelation 14, 14, we read that John is is recording the vision that God gave him of the end. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, and what? A sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and do what? Reap. What time is it? It's harvest. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
people, this is where you're headed. You may not escape it. God will not allow you to escape the harvest. And at the harvest, you will be judged. Every secret of your heart will be revealed. Every idle word will be called into judgment. Every lustful thought, every second look, every pencil taken home, every adultery, every bitterness, every self-pitying moment, And God is holy. And he won't compromise with you because he sees his sin. You will be judged by his character. And every part of his character is called a perfection. Because he is perfect. And this is where you and I and every soul who has ever been granted existence by God is headed. And it's his kindness that he tells us this. Because why? Well, let's continue. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now, here he is talking first in the first section to more people listening to him, but then in the second section to his disciples. And there must be a reason he's telling them this. What is he telling them? Well, he's telling them that in this world, and you know, you can say, well, it's the church. Well, yeah, the church is part of God's kingdom. But what he's telling us is that here in this life, we will be those of us who belong to him, living right next to tares. All right? We are the seed that he's planted. Jesus Christ is the the planter, and you and I, if we believe, are the seed. And we're real grain, or real wheat, which will produce real grain, okay? But all around us are those who are, some of them just just absolute, hellacious, godless, wicked men. What all through the Old Testament are referred to as uh, 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 worthless fellows. That's the construction I've grown kind of attached to reading through the historical books. Worthless fellows. It's like the worst kind of guy. Worthless. There are worthless fellows, but there are also many people that we live with who are not worthless fellows, but actually hypocrites. They're people who talk a lot about Jesus Christ and, and have a well-worn Bible and, and make a, a profession of faith and are good church members, but they're gossips. But they prey upon little children. They divorce their wives They steal. They're known to be greedy. And Jesus knows that this is very discouraging to the grain. Because the grain ends up saying what Psalm 73 says. You know, I hope you know Psalm 73. But it's a whole psalm lamenting the fact that it's the rich and the proud and the wicked who prosper in this world. And what good has it done for me to love God? And so Jesus knows that's a chronic vulnerability of God's people. To think that being God's seed, being God's plant, being God's uh, wheat and grain is worthless. And so what he's doing is he's doing in a little parable what Psalm 73 does if you remember it. Because you remember that he's just lamenting and bitter about how he's suffering for his godliness and the wicked prosper. And then he says, you know, I almost gave myself up to being a scandal to the people of God. And I was like a brute beast thinking this way. And then I came into the sanctuary of God and I remembered their end. 
Remember that? That's the pivotal point in that psalm. And he says, their feet, what? Their feet, come on, what is it? Their feet are on a slippery slope. And then he, 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 he draws this picture of the judgment of God of the wicked. And that's the comfort of the godly. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, don't be discouraged. Yes, you're surrounded by tares. Yes, it is true that in this life, despite this whole world being under the authority of God, it is true in this life, you will suffer. You will be punished. You will have to contend with heresies. You will have to deal with unfaithful wives and unfaithful husbands. You're going to have to watch your children despise the God who made them and walk away from the faith. In this life, we will have many tribulations. But, Fear not what comes next. Little flock, little flock, I have overcome the world. And that's what's going on in this parable. His enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went away. And, and that's Satan. You know, Satan, everything he does is at night. And then he doesn't, he's not man enough to stick around afterwards and look you in the eye. But he, he sneaks off. He sneaks off. He went away. But when the wheat sprouted, then the tares became evident also. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, but when the wheat sprouted, then the tares became evident also. What it says is, but when the wheat sprouted, and what? Bore grain. You know, I never tire of telling you that the great unheard doctrine of Scripture in the evangelical church today, the Reformed church today, is the doctrine of fruit. How do you know the difference between the tares and the wheat? Well, it says how you know. It says... But when the wheat sprouted and what? Bore grain, and grain is fruit. In other words, the fruit of the plant was the proof of whether it was planted by God or planted by Satan. Then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this, and Satan is our enemy. And though this world, what? With devils filled, remember Luther's a mighty fortress, and though this world with devils filled should what? Threaten to undo us. We will not. For God hath his to triumph, and this is the funny part of it, through us? <laughs> but that's God's plan. That's God's plan. Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you were gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. How precious is the wheat to God? It's not his being committed to the tares that causes him to hold them back and to restrain them. He doesn't want to lose one, one, one grain of wheat. Not one stalk. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds, verse 36, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And that's the one thing that you would never, never in a million years say. And you're saying, What? You would never say, would you please explain that to me? Because you're so proud. 
You just have to make it clear to everybody watching and listening that you knew what he was going to say before he opened his mouth. And that you are perfect in your understanding of every truth of God. Or if you're not perfect, you're at least not going to reveal your stupidity. Right? If you look at with me with me at Psalm 25, 8 and 9, you'll see a little secret of the godly. And this is a large part of why they're godly. There we read this. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. In the last couple of weeks, I've been involved in working on a situation where the only possible explanation for what has gone wrong in the situation is that God resists the proud. And it's just unbelievable. If you're old like I am, you'll get to the point in life where you'll see that certain men are so proud that there's nothing you can do, nothing you can say, there's no pain which will cause them to repent. That they are given over, God is resisting them, and the end has come. They're still walking, but they're walking corpses. Some of these men, you will see these men cut down. You'll see them die. You'll see them taken out of this world. And you will know that God did it. You won't say it. You won't write it. You won't blog about it. But it'll be very clear that God resists the proud. And I'm just quoting scripture. God has enough pride for every one of us who's ever lived. And it's not pride with him. It is jealousy for his glory. And he will not give his glory to any man. You notice that these ones who were his workers, they're just slaves. Now who are the slaves? Well, the slaves are the preachers. You think about how important preachers are today. Oh, 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 we're so important. No, 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 no. We're slaves. And we say, do you want us to do such and such? He says, no. And so we don't do such and such. They're not named. They're just slaves. That's all they are. And so here these men were that God was, that Jesus was training to be the apostles of his church, to plan his church. These men that would most of them face martyrs' deaths before their life was over. And Jesus had them come to him. And they said to him, would you please explain this to us? And if they had not asked that question, what we're about to read would not exist. And so Jesus did as they asked. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus reference to himself. He is the son of man. So the one who sows this good seed is me, the Messiah, the son of God, the son of man. And the field is the world. All over the world, you remember it says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world. And all over the world, the gospel is going out. And all over the world, God has sown his seed. There are Christians. There are believers. There are those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, who have been washed with the blood of Jesus, who have had the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world wash them with his blood. And now the wrath of God is turned aside from them. That's the gospel. And all over the world, all through time, there have been those who belong to God. They have been sown in the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. We live under the authority of God. Imperfectly, 
often unbelievably tepidly, timidly, fearfully, ashamedly, we live for the kingdom of God. These are the sons of the kingdom. We are sons of God. He is our Father. Pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And this is you women, just as much as you men. You're sons of God with all the inheritance of a son. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen, if you do not belong to Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of God has not brought you to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ, this is your end. This is certainly as these walls are concrete. This floor is concrete. Hard and it will not yield to you. The judgment of God will not yield to you. You have been weighed and found wanting. You may have kept it a secret from your wife, your husband, your mother, your grandparents. It's no secret from God. And the blood of his son is not cheap. He has given it for your salvation. He has given it to cover you and your sin. As horrendous as that sin is, and you know how horrendous it is, the blood of Jesus is sufficient for that sin. And so if you hear him saying here, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. You're being told this so that you will flee that fire. This is your warning. You can never say after today you have not been warned. God is merciful in giving you this warning this day. And you should flee the wrath to come. Jesus will not turn you out. If you come to him, he will receive you. And so he ends by saying, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you remember a few weeks ago we were talking about that same phrase being used by Jesus. And what you need to see is that those who sit here in this church resistant against God, refusing to be warned, refusing to heed, refusing to be teachable, refusing to repent, refusing to be humble, that when they are judged by God, they will be cast into a place Wherever after, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we understand the weeping, right? That's easy. Sorrow. But the gnashing of teeth is, 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 is incomprehensible to us. That having chosen a life of utter resistance and rebellion against God and receiving the just penalty for that rebellion that then they would be angry, they would gnash their teeth? And this is how Jesus describes the wicked. They don't stop being wicked in hell. There isn't repentance in hell. There is firmly committed to the principle of their life, which is pride as they were every day they lived on this earth. And then the other part. You notice how Jesus is always dividing. You know, the great scandal in postmodern world is division and distinction. He's always dividing. 
And he here divides with verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, which do you want to do? You want to be cast into an eternity of weeping and gnashing your teeth? Or do you want to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father? Which do you want? Which do you want? What do you want? Which do you want? You do want to shine. You know, as I look, as I look in your faces, and I put myself where you are, okay, and I think of myself sitting where you are, I think, you know, there's so many reasons to not repent. There's so many pressures on us to not hear. And to not go under the blood of Jesus. And listen, I'll tell you, here's what they all amount to. They all amount to pride. Come on. Come on. What is your pride going to get you? I remember one funeral I went to here in Bloomington. I saw the most awful thing in the world. For some reason, and I have no idea. I, I tried not to find out, and I'm glad to this day I've never found out. But for some reason, in this particular case, this man, at his visitation, and there was basically nobody there, he sat on like a, uh, an ambulance cart. And he was a big man, big man. And there he was on this little like metal kind of cart with a sheet over his middle. And that was his visitation. What's the point of your pride? You're going to go into the grave naked. You came in the world naked. My wife did three the last two weeks. She saw them all. And she testifies to me. I have it on her authority as a doula. That they come in naked. And you're going to go out naked. And so, what's with the pride? What's with the pride? Jesus. Jesus is good. God is holy. Not one man and woman in this room is either good or holy. And so you don't need to think a bit about what I think of you or what Rachel thinks of you or what Curtis thinks of you. You don't need to think what the elders think of you. You don't need to think what the whites think of you or the blacks think of you or the Asians think of you. What you need to do is you need to look to the harvest. And you need to realize that God delights in division and that soon we will be one of two classes of people. Those who are bound up with the wicked and cast into the fire where they spend eternity weeping and gnashing their teeth. Or we will be the righteous who will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who do you want to have as a father, Jesus or Satan? Jesus. So take him as your father. Say, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and earth. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave, a servant. And what does the father do? He says, kill the calf. Make cheesecake. Bring the homebrew out. Because my son has come home. Come on home. Come on home. Now you notice I didn't finish. (laughs) Here's the last sentence. What's the last sentence? I love it. What is it? He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus treats us with such dignity. Now, I'm really serious. I knew you are going to laugh, not you, but I knew people were going to laugh at that. But he really does treat us with such dignity. We do really have free will. You have a choice right now. You do have ears, and so will you hear. What a precious gift to us is the Word of God. I do love you. I love you. I don't want you to perish. Turn before it's too late. Turn. Turn to God, not to me, not to us. Turn to God. And take him as your father. Okay. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do call us to use our ears and to listen. Father, would you please forgive us for our lust? Would you please forgive us for our adultery? Father, would you forgive us for our thieving and our cheating and our plagiarism and our our greed. But Father, most of all, would you please forgive us for our pride. Would you do a work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit, changing death to life, transferring us from the fatherhood of Satan to your kingdom, where there is exceeding joy forevermore and where we will shine like the sun because we will no longer see through the glass darkly, but face to face our Lord Jesus Christ who has bought us with his own blood. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.